don't wanna waste my life I just wanna play the game right this time Welcome, this is Nonprofit Tangent. I am here with Priya Singh, who is, according to this, a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, we used to work together, and Priya is one of the most amazing teachers uh, I've ever seen and was an ELA teacher in high school uh, and is still in education. I like to still call myself a teacher, so you can still continue to call me a teacher. All right. And uh, today we have the writing episode. We're going to uh, listen to three interviews of organizations that have a theme in common, which is writing. So before we get started, actually, I wanted to ask you a question. What is it about writing that you find interesting? Well, you know, ironically, I became a teacher because I was more about the reading. But I guess when you're reading, you're reading writing. So that's something, right? There you go, absolutely. Um, I felt like, and I continue to feel like, words are really powerful, and they are powerful to everyone. And so we all have different opinions about different things, we all like different things, but no one can deny how powerful the written word is. And even if we like different writing, it's still the core of feelings and maybe our civilization. I like to make that argument. Who's your favorite superhero? Oh, listen, this is actually also gonna be quite <laughs> long and might require editing. I was talking to my friend and she said Wonder Woman. And you know, there was a Wonder Woman movie. And I thought, this is really terrible because she is really awesome until the end of the movie when she says that BS line about love is the thing that brings us all together or is the most powerful thing or whatever the line was and i was really annoyed because all these women superheroes always are about the feelings and men superhero brooding we get to be brooding yeah batman was no he was stoic he was like i have a job to do i care about justice and that was it any female x-man would always swoon randomly after they used their power like just having power was so overwhelming they had to pass out so this is a much more, a much longer answer than you think about. So I'm going to go with maybe no one. And I'm not saying like feelings are not a part of being a person. I'm just saying I want like a fuller female superhero that I can say like this is my superhero. Cool. So the first interview is going to be with this organization called 826NYC and the Superhero Supply Company. Joshua Mandelbaum, who is the executive director of 826 NYC. Hello. Thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to me about uh, the organization. Thank you for inviting me on the show. This is exciting. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what is 826 NYC. So 826 NYC is a uh, youth writing organization. Basically, our mission is to use creative and inspiring programs to help young New Yorkers build their writing skills and as well as the confidence in their voice. Um, we want them to feel like they can go out in the world and have something to say. Our focus is on working with under-resourced students. Um, we work actively in three boroughs that we serve organizations through our field trips in all five boroughs. Yeah, if you could write and you're young, we probably have a program for you. Um, we are often better known um, as the Brooklyn Superhero Supply Company, which is our whimsical storefront where you can test a cape, find a superpower of your liking, and behind and pull out one of our shelves to find our secret door where most of our programs happen. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the, the thing that really stuck out to me is this marriage of the uh, writing program um, connected really strongly with uh, superheroes and where did this idea come from? So, H26 as a concept was started in San Francisco um, mm -hmm. by the author Dave Eggers and Nineveh Caligari, and it was founded at H26 Valencia Street in San Francisco, thus our name, otherwise meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was an idea that, um, you know, when Dave's publishing company, McSweeney's, moved out to the West Coast, he wanted to find a way for the editors to give back and the community to give back. Um, and as a writer himself, he knew the value of the written word of being able to express yourself creatively. 
And so we had this idea that kids could come in and get help with their homework and do writing and and have sort of an imaginative experience that was all their own. The, from the very beginning, H.U. Six centers were set up to be spaces that were third spaces for students that they could really own and make theirs. Um, the store idea was completely accidental. They found out that zoning on Valencia Street required that if you had a retail location, you had to have a retail shop. It was really important to Dave, and it is part of the 826 model that kids can enter from the street. They don't have to push an elevator button. They can find us um, as they pass by on their way home from school. Um, and they had got a gym, and they thought it looked like a pirate store. So they were like, Let's, let's make this a pirate supply company. And this is much thought went into it. And then when we opened in 2004, we were like, well, there's a lot of superheroes from New York City, so let's make this a superhero store. Yeah. There are now eight 826 chapters across the country, um, more than 50 organizations worldwide that have been inspired by this model. The 826 chapters all have a store. They're all different. Right. Some of the international groups have stores. They're also different. Right, right. So it's, it, it's, uh, it's a model that's really taken hold. Very cool. Um, so yeah, let's talk about some of the, the kids yeah. you worked with. Tell me a little bit about you. I think this is so this is cool on so many levels. But you uh, Taylor made a program for a, a student named Alex. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about Alex and. I mean, we are a student centered program, and we try to put sort of our students at the forefront and their interests at the forefront in all of our programs, like what they write, how they write. It, it, it's about them. Um, Alex was a special case, and I didn't get to know Alex until he was much older, but he's sort of a legend at age six because he's a student who's lived in the neighborhood and started with us at age six. And he came in with his flip camera. I think, yeah, those old flip cameras before iPhones existed. And he was always recording stuff. He talked about movies all the time. And the staff realized he had a real passion for film. Um, and so they decided to make a uh, program for him um, and the other students. That was their summer filmmakers program. That one was for a decade sort of the hallmark of our summer programs. Um, when I came to H26, Alex had graduated from participating as a student in that program to working behind the camera. And he was doing other film programs elsewhere because it was still his passion. Mm-hmm. He was involved with, um, and he is now um, in his sophomore at uh, UCLA Film School. Uh, and still comes when he's at home, comes in and volunteers with us. Cool. I love that story. A, I think it's awesome that you are so receptive to the desires and the interests of the students, and then you kind of, to be able to see it follow through from, yeah, we helped the student kind of explore this interest, and now they're on their on their way to graduating with that. We have a student right now, Noemi, who also, she actually started coming to us when she was four before she could be in the program because her brother was in the program. And she graduates this year, um, and from from high school. So from she high school. So okay. she started with us at age six. She won a Scholastic Writing Award two years ago. Wow. Um, last year, we nominated her to be part of the International Youth Congress out in San Francisco. She represented us along with another student of ours, Monica. Obviously, writing is not um, something that jumps to mind. It's something that's young students love doing yeah necessarily it's unfortunate I think that's true right um I'm a writer I sometimes don't love doing it have you gone from students that have been like I don't want to do this to suddenly really embracing it as a expression yes I think I think the short answer is yes next question I think the long (laughs) like the long answer is it is always um it is always a process with the students right I actually have a piece from a student. Yeah, I have have, have several pieces from students I'm not sure, but um, this is from a student named Jeffrey. This is a poem called Copyright, and I think it also talks about the tutor relationship because what this poem is is the tutor that Jeffrey, the volunteer that Jeffrey was working with that day. It's one volunteer and three students. This is what he was saying to another student while Jeffrey was working on his writing prompt. So Copyright by Jeffrey. It's time to go, so let's get this poem over with. Just please write another few lines. Come on. Isaac, keep on going. Do the poem. The poem. Poem has to be about your words, not mine. So this was a volunteer talking to our student Isaac. And Jeffrey just transcribed all of this. And then he titled it Copyright. This is a 13-year-old. And this is just like Amazing, right? Like, yeah, that's fantastic, Jeffrey. Like, right. Way to take your environment and the experience you're having right now and turn it into something really wonderful. And we see that 
sort of all the time. That's really cool. How does Isaac feel about this? Isaac, I think, is fine with it. I think the, vol- <laughs> the volunteer was a little, <laughs> a, a little upset, and okay. you know, I think our our volunteers, you know, the reluctance of young writers. It's really interesting that you called that out because the reluctance of young people to write is something that volunteers are not often ready for. We really believe that if you let the students play with language, with with voice, and with their ideas, they're going to be more receptive to learning all the rules and the structures. We do a program where um, it's for very young. It, it works most best for elementary students, where a class comes to the center and they're told that our grumpy editor Ms. Mildew wants to write a book, wants wants books, but she's very angry, and. They go behind the secret door, which is always amazing for them, and they, they work on a story together. And the one rule that we have with it is it has to be a proper story. And we discuss what are the parts of a narrative, and our instructor's role is to make sure that all those parts get in. And that they can't, they have to be a completely original character and setting. Public domain, everything else is off. You can't tell a story about SpongeBob, can't tell a story about Chicken Little, it has to be original. As Malou only wants original stories. And nine times out of ten, they get a little bit surreal, and it's, re- but it's also like wonderful. And I want I want to read ex- excerpt from one of our favorites from last year, excellent, which was written by the students at Leadership Prep Brownsville. Um, they're a fourth grade count class, and this is the story of the taco loving taco dinosaur. And I'm just going to read a few paragraphs here. One day, inside of a huge taco. Tacos were going crazy and trying to eat each other. They were doing this because there was a huge taco dinosaur who was also trying to eat the tacos. So they wanted to eat each other to be safe. Where's my lunch? The taco dinosaur roared. Where's my breakfast? Where's my dinner? The taco people were very upset with the taco dinosaur because it had eaten the taco king. The taco dinosaur had to come to Tacoopolis because nobody liked him on earth. He'd asked for the taco king for some tacos to eat and when he did not get what he asked for, he ate the taco king. <laughs> And it just kind of goes on like that. <laughs> and that is almost every one of these experiences. Like, they come up with wild ideas. And sometimes the idea I really want doesn't get voted. And I'm like, what are you doing? This was the, this was the, the stroke of genius. Right. But you, we let them. <laughs> right. Um, one of my favorites was um, Blasio de Bill, the hip, hipster artisanal lampshade making llama. <laughs> Um, that was a great one. We let them. We gave them some leeway in a rainbow, a unicorn that farts rainbows was a pretty good one. <laughs> we oh, we, they wanted to do Chicken Little one time, and they, we said no. Mm-hmm. So they came up with Chicken Litter, the littering chicken. <laughs> but then Chicken Litter lived inside the belly of a man, and like, and they told a whole story about that, like right. a proper narrative <laughs> about that. And I mean, these are two-hour stories that are. There's no editing. There's no like, they just go at it. Right. But they do, it. and then and they have a lot of fun. And then what we hear from the teachers is it changes the way they think about how they tell. Oh, they that's can great. Teach storytelling. Right. Like they can see that they can take a whole class and let them go a little crazy. Right. But still get them to do the storytelling. Right. Right. Like they still teach all the parts of the narrative because we stop them. Often they'll a lot of action will happen and no one will say anything to one another. It's like, wait. No one has said anything, or we haven't described what anything looks like. We need to do that, mm-hmm. right? Like we remind them that, like it's not going to sure. work if we just do one thing. People are just talking back and forth. That's going to be. That's not going to work. So right. We help guide them in that process. Oh, that's really but cool. They, but they bring all the imagination to it. That's really cool. And what, so one of the things I actually want to talk about, which is um, I think wonderful, is that you you take some of this creative writing and you're able to publish it, which I think. Yeah. Is one that's 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 one of the things that is something that teachers really want to do, I think. But it's not always easy. Is to put some level of stakes to the writing. So tell me, what is the what is that like for students to see their work in in print? Publishing is at the very very heart of what we do right. because while we also while we are focused on skills, what we really want the young people we work with to f- is to feel that their voice has value and that their voice should be heard. And as often as we can, you know, we. We're a small nonprofit. We don't have a big distribution, and convincing people to buy the writing of sixth graders is not easy. 
but we sell it at the superhero store and people do buy it. We had an old bachelorette party come in and buy a bunch of books. Like <laughs> um, the other day. But we're, we're always selling the books and people are always being fascinated by the writing. But right. even for them just to have it for their families, for them to have it, to share, to see that we give it to our volunteers, it goes in school libraries, it goes in our library. And then there's always a reading. We did the launch of this book, The Review. We did that at the Union Square Barnes & Noble. Um, we, oh, wow. That's, we will as far as bookstores go, that's, yeah, that's I mean, big time. It was, a nice, it was a nice. We've done readings at Nellie Jackson. We bring our students to to meet our supporters. And Do you have any favorite reactions? Like, is anyone, when you're, when you're kind of talking about this whole process of this end result of, of being published? This is not an 826 NYC story, but, like, 826 LA had a good one where... They had a student that was beginning a new program. I think it was a, like a freshman year in college, or was working with a teacher in a special project. And they were the question was like, "Well, what is one thing I should know about you?" And the student raised their hand, and they're like, "I was a published author." And that is the the tone for yeah. like they're published authors, and you see that that has meaning. Cool. Is there any other any other stories that um, I haven't really necessarily asked about you want to share or any other thing that... Uh, could I read one more piece? Oh, yeah. You know what? That's what I meant to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm the worst. I'd like to read one more piece. I, well, I, w- I wanted to reshare one more because I read... Yeah, definitely. I read two of our funny ones and two of our younger student ones. And now I'm going to read a piece by Brianna, who's 15. And this came about through a program we did at Bronx Leadership Academy. And we did a book. This is an anthology of her best of, but... Um, this is A Different Me by Brianna, age 15. Once I was a different person, nice, kind, let anyone walk over me. Everyone thought I was a yes person. Once I was a different person, once I said no, they all thought wrong. The positive part was no more footprints on my clothes. Once I was a different person, the nice, kind person went into hiding. A bold, open-minded, cold-hearted person came out to play. Won't hold back from telling what it is. Nice, kind, footprints on her clothes or what I used to be. Now I'm a modern Milan, a warrior, a young woman who can fight back. I have washed the footprints off my shirt. Surprisingly, the stains, the stains came out quick. Wow, that is, uh, not only is that a wonderful poem, but I just feel like that's super contemporary. Like that is definitely hitting right at the heart of, yeah. of kind of what's happening in the world right and, now. And when, and when we work with our older students, we, they often, want to address those issues. Do you know anything about what went into that writing? So this prompt was just sort of writing about yourself. Okay. Um, we were we were trying to work on poems that expressed who you were and, and sort of looking back on, on, on who you were and, and where you are now and sort of childhood to now. Um, and this is what she came up with. Mm. And we you know, immediately, it, it was certainly a standout from that workshop. Well, thank you for uh, uh, reserving this little... Uh, phone booth, which is kind of actually appropriate for the superhero supply company. Yeah, it, it is. It is. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So that was 826 NYC. Yeah, and I thought that I didn't know who they were, but I actually do know who they are. Uh, yeah, I went to a reading uh, by Dave Eggers at the Brooklyn Academy of Music maybe last year um, because he was doing a reading from his book about coffee, The Monk of Mocha. Okay. And he had some of the students from Brooklyn do a reading then too. And it was really awesome. It was beautiful to hear students read their own work oh, nice. and to have a stage like BAM right. and a captive audience listen to them. It was awesome. They have really good connections or something because they, they get to do some really cool stuff with their students. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think about for them, having both of us at some point taught, um, trying to get students to write in high school, mm-hmm. they have really kind of like a, more, a much more unstructured approach. And I feel like that in some way kind of helps almost rehabilitate students who have been going to schools and being like kind of forced to write. Mm-hmm. It's like a way to like get back into writing and, and maybe enjoy writing again. What do you think of, of well, their approach? I love that. I think it's hard to teach creativity 
in a structured way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that in education, there's definitely an onus on structure and sometimes relinquishing those things really enables students to feel like they have a role and they have a place in that field, which here is writing. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I was, um, I think that I liked what he said about students having a voice because I think that students feeling powerful and feeling like their voice should be heard is really important. And so if it is unstructured, I think that lends validity to what they're doing because then they're not boxed out by feeling like, oh, I don't know where to put this comma or am I in the past progressive tense? <laughs> um, and so I do think that that is how it should be. Mm -hmm. Part of it is definitely the, the creativity on one side, but part of it is that they're, they get to see their, this finished product, which when I was uh, having students write, it was really just a conversation between me and the student, the mm -hmm. writing was, you know? So I think the idea of like being able to write something and you know, when you express something creatively, you want people to see it and experience your creativity. Yeah. Um, I remember once dealing with a really difficult class and they didn't care at all about producing an argument essay or writing this position paper, but uh, when asked to write poetry, they loved it and they did it. And it was beautiful to watch and really empowering for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my own biased way, I would love for students to be creative and feel powerful and then use their voice in other ways too, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't have to be as dry as a position paper, but I'm really inspired by the march recently on education where students asked for more teachers of color and for more culturally relevant curriculum. Like that's great and students should feel like they can do that. And I think starting with creative writing is a nice entryway into, feel, into students feeling like their voices matter and people will listen to them. Mm -hmm. And so personally, I would love it to be a jumping off point into advocacy, but it doesn't have to be, right? right. Creativity can, can be a kind of advocacy or it could not. So it's just great to see more students find a pathway to expression, to self-expression. Nice. So the next, uh, the next interview is with an organization um, that I was, I didn't realize how familiar I was with their work when I first started talking to them. And then I showed up and I had to be like, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know who you guys were until I started to look into it more. But uh, the next interview is with an organization called Library of America. Okay. Um, and have you heard of them before? Well, I said I hadn't heard of the last one. And maybe I haven't heard of these guys either, but I'll pleasantly surprise you. I will surprise you. So um, if you've ever gone to a bookstore or a library and you see kind of an older work that's been printed and it has kind of like a very distinguished like blue dark blue cover with kind of a red and white stripe on it okay so so they put a blue and white and red cover on the book if that description is still not doing it after my second try i'll show you a picture oh. and maybe you can describe it oh yes Oh, okay. right. Yes. So I'm going to ask Priya to maybe describe it now that you're seeing a picture of it. <laughs> so the point of reference for me would be there's a stark black background and then there's a red, white and blue stripe in the middle. Okay. And then a picture. Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe, but when you see it, you would know it. Instant. Right. Yes. So this is my uh, this is my interview with Library of America. Boy, you got me all tied up when I look at you. I'm here with Max Rudin, who is the president and publisher of Library of America. So thank you for, for taking some time to talk to me. My pleasure. Yeah, tell me, first off, what is uh, Library of America? Library of America is a nonprofit publisher and cultural institution 
that's devoted to developing and making available authoritative editions of the best, most significant American writing, and also providing resources for readers uh, of all kinds to connect to those writings. And I actually feel really silly because um, I didn't realize, I hadn't connected the, the kind of um, iconic covers mm. with the name. And I'm a history major, and I've been using your books for, uh, for decades. So um, it wasn't until, I think, after I made the initial phone call, I was like, oh, my God, yeah. it's those people. Well, it's kind of an occupational hazard, I would say, of the publishing industry, which is that people don't tend to identify the publisher as a brand so much. Right. Even though in our case, it's very clear that it's a, that the main thing we do is a, is a uniform series. Right. But I think people tend to, you know, latch on a particular author, a particular book, without necessarily thinking of, you know, who the publisher is behind that book. Right, right. From what I read online, you were there almost at the beginning. Yeah, so I, was, I uh, in the summer of 1980, I began working on the project, which was six months after it was founded in 79. And, uh, you know, the backstory is that uh, in the early 60s, the literary critic Edmund Wilson, you know, pointed out that certain other countries had definitive national readers' editions of their national literature. For example, France, in particular, had the Bibliothèque de la Pléiade, where French readers could find authoritative editions of, you know, Baudelaire's works or Proust's works, and uh, in collected editions. And the United States didn't have that. At any rate, he pointed out that, you know, you could find certain books all the time, like Moby Dick, because there was a market for them or because there was a, uh, a demand for them in the academy, in the, in the classroom, but that if you were looking for Melville's complete works, you couldn't find them. Mm -hmm. And he called for such an edition to be created. Uh, and really, it took about you know, 15 years. Uh, Edmund Wilson, meanwhile, died and passed the baton to Jason Epstein, who was the editorial director of Random House. And Jason, along with a group of academics and foundation um, officials, put together a proposal uh, that eventually um, was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Ford Foundation in 1979, and Library of America was created. And it was understood from the beginning that it would have to be created on a non-profit, non-commercial basis because for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it needed to be mission, not market-driven, which is to say, you know, books would be published and authors published in the series because they were significant, not necessarily because they would sell enough copies to pay the costs of publishing them. Uh, and also that, um, you know, research, textual research, uh, would have to go into the books that a commercial publisher was not in a position to be able to invest in, that the books would need to be kept permanently in print and available, which, which is another huge cost that a commercial publisher wouldn't be able to uh, float. Um, and, and in other ways, it would be kind of an educational and cultural institution as much as a publisher. And so that, um, that the, the kind of the non-profit approach seemed to be the, the only way it was going to work. I should also say that the value that goes into both the scrupulous editorial process and the very high production standards is not reflected in the end price. And, you know, that's because it was always our notion that we wanted to be able to distribute the books as widely mm -hmm. as we could, make them available to American readers, and well, not world readers, in fact. I guess I wanted to ask you about Wrinkle in Time. Is it safe to say that no one had read the correct copy until it came it came from you guys well the background to that is that you know we're pledged to do research into the printing and publishing history of every single work that we publish in order to make sure that the version that is published in library of america is the most authoritative version what does that mean it means the version that the author wanted to present to the public now you know many times we do that research and we don't turn up anything extraordinary. We find that the first edition as it was published is the ver the author was quite content with that. But there are times when uh, we actually uncover pay dirt in the process of, of doing that. In the case of A Wrinkle in Time, you know, Madeline Lengel's papers and all her manuscripts and typescripts for the book were at her granddaughter's daughter's apartment on the Upper West Side on 107th Street. And as our editors worked through that material, they found that there were chapters that had been deleted from the book before it was published. Uh, for various reasons, at the suggestion of her editor at her publishing house. Um, and so we were able, in that case, to restore uh, 
A Wrinkle in Time to the text as Madeline Lengel originally had hoped for it to be published. There are other dramatic stories. Um, you know, Richard Wright in 1940, uh, when he published Native Son, Native Son, uh, the typescript for Native Son is at the Beinecke Library, the, the rare book room at Yale. Uh, no one, I don't think, had looked at that in a long time. When our, when our researchers went up there and compared that typescript, which is to say the copy that Wright submitted to Harper and Rowe, his publisher, and they compared it to the published version, when that version was compared to the published version, there were interesting discrepancies, including an entire chapter that had been dropped and other changes. And looking further into it, we discovered that what had happened was Harper and Rowe had submitted the book to Book of the Month Club, which wanted to select it as the first Book of the Month Club selection by an African-American writer. This was 1940. But they felt that certain passages of the book were a little too provocative, either sexually or racially, for their mainstream audience. And they said, would Mr. Wright be willing to delete those? And, you know, Wright's editor conveyed the question to him, and he debated, and in the end, I think decided that the the um, the advance for the race in having the book chosen as a book of the month club selection outweighed at that moment his wanting to have the book appear as he wrote it. Right. And he agreed to the changes, but he was never happy about it. Right. So that was a case where we were able to publish Native Son for the first time, as Richard Wright intended it to be to be read. Wow. So there, there are many stories like that, and there are, um, and it's what, as I say, it's what we mean by textual authority of the series. So every book we publish has that kind of work behind it. There's a whole other side to this, which is really kind of promoting these works mm-hmm. and, and getting them out there. What kinds of feedback have you gotten um, from people who have been able to encounter books that they might not have otherwise? Well, I think part of our mission for Library of America is to, to, to kind of stretch people's imaginations in terms of what great American writing means. Hmm. So we not only publish editions of acknowledged, you know, great masterpieces by Herman Melville or, you know, or, or um, James Baldwin, or, or, but it's also you know, the papers of Abraham Lincoln. It's also the writings of the journalists of World War II in Vietnam. Um, it's also, you know, great pulp crime novelists. I mean, the idea is to kind of get all these things kind of bouncing off each other to give kind of a more capacious idea of what great American writing is. So if you ask, you know, what audiences, you know, do we affect? What kind of a, you know, it depends on the book a lot. I would say that, you know, one of our projects right now is, you know, since recent events in tragic events in Parkland and elsewhere, I mean, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest in the democratic process. Uh, high school students are very interested right now uh, in um, in American democracy and how it works. And so we've, uh, we see, what we've been trying to do over the last couple of years is to, is to put primary texts, great American political speeches, writings by Alexander Hamilton, uh, the debate over the Constitution, put paperback editions of those books in the hands of high school teachers around the country to use in the classroom. Mm. Uh, so it's our contribution to that effort. That's one example. Um, we also do other kinds of public programming around the books. I mean, last year, for example, uh, 2017 was the 100th anniversary of America's entry into World War One. There's some very, very interesting writing that tells the story of America in World War One. you know, writing by you know, of course, soldiers. It was the first modern combat war, so there's a lot of horrific writing from soldiers, which resonates a lot with with um, what's going on in combat now. But writings by anti-war activists, by nurses, by statesmen. So we, uh, Scott Berg, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, put together a collection of these writings for Library of America called World War One in America, told by the Americans who lived it. Um, and that book, as this is one example, was the platform for public conversations in 120 public libraries around the country where we brought veterans of recent wars together with their neighbors to talk about these texts from 100 years ago and to understand, learn about, and understand how they resonate with their own experience and how they don't. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you know, look, you know, the, the works in Library of America are 
are our foundational American texts. So, I mean, what that means is inevitably they resonate with our experience. So, you know, we try to create opportunities for that to happen, you know, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's in public libraries or whether it's um, in gala events and museums or whatever, or whether it's online, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So there's that, there's always been that kind of double aspect. Right, making sure these books are getting into the hands of people and being understood. And being them. understood. And, you know, and more and more, I mean, you know, uh, you know, people need more and more context all the time. Sure. I mean, as far as books get older, it's harder to understand the context of the time that they were written in. Right. That's right. You mentioned Hamilton, and I just wondered, did the musical give a bump? Whenever there's a movie uh, of, of something, you know, Wrinkle in Time was one example, or when, you know, several years ago there was a movie of Less of the Mohicans, suddenly Jane Sinema Cooper. <laughs> we couldn't keep that in stock. But, um, you know, the most recent interesting example, I think, is that uh, you know, the backlist book, and backlist, you know, just means books that were published more than 12 months ago, just not a, not a recent book. The backlist book that's been in most in demand uh, this past year and has been in growing demand over the last four years is James Baldwin's Collected Essays. Uh, and there was a particular bump around the time of the Raoul Peck documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Right. Um, but it's, it was happening before that. There's something going on in the culture right now which is making Baldwin's words central to people's experiences, and they're turning to him, and we see that reflected in our in demand for our books. Oh, that's interesting. So you can look at the numbers of different books and see like some trends happening, maybe. Absolutely. Uh, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Is there any interactions that you've had with some of the writers that you're you're publishing? I mean, particularly for someone who might be republishing something from years ago, it might be like kind of cathartic and interesting for them to kind of go through the process of republishing something. Some of the pleasure, I would say, is in being able to uh, lend a certain kind of literary respectability to writers who might not be seen that way. I mean, that's it's kind of less true now. But when we published, you know, when we published Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer. Um, there was an enormous outpouring of love, you know, from from the science fiction readership who said, like, finally, someone's giving us our due, you know, <laughs> uh, and that was wonderful. Um, and uh, you know, and in some other, and you know, similarly, I would say, I mean, this seems might seem funny now, but when we published, you know, James Thurber, uh, which Garrison Keillor did an edition for us, um, you know, the feeling was somehow a writer who had always been considered in some weird way sub-literary, although I never thought of him that way, again, was getting was getting recognition from Library of America. So there's that pleasure as well. Right. Uh, and I said I was going to end on that question, and then I had another question, okay. and it's my podcast, so I'm going to add one more question, <laughs> sure. which is, what is the... What's the hidden gem that you feel like doesn't get enough attention that's in your catalog that you're like... Uh, how uh, you know this book is 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 not getting attention and and it deserves way more respect than it's getting. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Ursula Le Guin's writings. I, I I'm actually now that we're through the interview, basically, I can I can confess I'm not as well read as I would like to be. So I'm not I'm not familiar. Nobody's as well read as they would like as they would like to be. <laughs> Ursula Le Guin um, is a writer who, in the 50s and 60s kind of upended American science fiction by breaking into what had been a boys club uh, and bringing new kinds of concerns and a new level of literary aspiration to the science fiction genre. And in particular, she has a series of novels and stories that she calls her Hainish stories, which is a unit, it's a kind of an intergalactic universe where things happen on different planets. Hmm. And I would say that although she's well known to science fiction readers, she's not as well known to literary readers, and she should be. And we recently published a two-volume set of her Hainish novels and stories, and I would say that The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed are two you know, tremendous novels uh, which explore you know, ideas of you know, you know, race and gender in the context of imagining what worlds would be like where humans have evolved in ways different from the way we understand. So, for example, in one of the books, uh, humans have evolved so that they are neither male nor female but can be either one at the end of the month when they go into heat. It's a way of imagining what a culture might look like if it weren't dominated by by, by gender identity, you know, right. if, were, if it were more fluid. This is one example. And another novel she imagines 
she is a meditation on the idea of anarchy by imagining a planet that actually does not have a government. And she works out the details of that. But she's a beautiful writer and a beautiful thinker. And those are those are books that I would recommend. Are all these in this in this set? They're all in that two wow. point set. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And everything you're saying actually reminds me of what I think is almost expected from science fiction now. That it's a way of examining. I mean, Star Trek was famous for that. Right. Ma- imagining contemporary issues through the lens of That's a right. science fiction universe. That's right. And it sounds like she was kind of an interviewer. Well, I mean, her in father uh, was the. Uh, famous anthropologist Alfred Krober who kind of you know founded the Columbia University Anthropology Department so she was used to thinking kind of anthropologically and that kind of also finds its way into her work anyway very proud of that set and I hope it you know introduces her to a wider readership than she's had that's cool thank you again for meeting with me and uh, and telling me some stories about uh, Library of America thank you very much everybody's got their own place to be but we get together on the one two three Walking, everybody's wide awake Talking, all my cares go away Try to skip the lines at every bar So we get together on the NQR Oh, everybody's all here together Trying to make life a little better And New York So when you mentioned uh, Ursula Le Guin Yeah Yeah, there, you got very excited Well, I actually think that that interview was really exciting So this is a lot of fun for you Because this is like pretty cool that you get to talk to all these people about all this cool stuff Yeah, especially when you stumble into a place not knowing If if I had actually known who Library of America was when I first I would have just probably not contacted them Like, oh, they're too big for my little podcast But, you know I think I, I mentioned it there as a history major in college. You know, so many of our books, you yeah. know, if we get like the Federalist Papers or something, it was, that's... It's so cool. That was really cool. And I want to take a moment because now we've listened to two interviews okay. to shout out the school I work for, which is DeWitt Clinton High School, because in your first interview, superheroes are mentioned, and we have loads of superhero alum that graduated from Clinton, Stan Lee, Bob Kane. Then in the second interview, there's this huge shout out to James Baldwin, who's also a Clinton grad. Really? So yeah, so we're just, DeWitt Clinton is killing it in Oh this, man, in this I nailed podcast. the co-host for this one. Got it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so no, that was really exciting, especially, I mean, thinking about how we're, think, we're trying to get more voices and we want to empower young people to get their voices out there. It was like a great way to think about, A, how sometimes that can get perverted by publishing, mm. but also B, right. that there's an organization out there who is trying to reverse that a little and really find authoritative versions of what people originally wrote so that they could be true to the original intentions of the writer. Because of this interview, I went and looked at some of the World War One stuff, and I'm reading a book called Through the Wheat, which is something that um, Library of America put together. It was written just in the 1920s. The writer is very much informed by uh, their experiences in World War One, um, And there are some real... I'm interested to see where it goes because some of the attitudes towards race are Ooh. not contemporary. Yeah. Um, it is still a really interesting book, and I think it's it, having those warts in there really is interesting and makes it I don't know where I'm going with this but like it is interesting to see that and it obviously um, I'm sitting there kind of cringing at some of the points uh, of what the characters are doing and it's because it's the 1920s and it's not 2019 they don't necessarily suffer moral consequences in the way we would see like in a movie or someone now Mm -hmm. being racist you know Um, sometimes sometimes that's true I'm only at the very beginning of it too so I can't comment on it too much when reading, how important is it to understand the context of the writing, when the writing happened? Mm. You know, I usually think that it's not. Um, yeah. And when I was in a class and the teacher droned on and on about X happening and Y happening, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, that's for history class. Um, Because I always felt like at the core of the story were people. And you didn't need to understand historical context to understand people. I mean, there are still people who exist who have those 1920s attitudes. Mm -hmm. And we could see that guy, that lady out there. And there are just as many, um, I think, like, 
beyond culture or language or time, at the core there's a person. And you didn't really need to know historical context to really get people. Uh, I mean, now that I'm older, sometimes context is nice because it lends itself to a deeper understanding of what is happening. But I still think I, I'm not much of a, a Googler. Certainly the, the general context, but also the, the individual experience of the person writing the story. Mm. Do you think that helps understand the story? Or do you feel like the story really, stories and novels, particularly fiction, kind of stand on their own without understanding the experience the of that person? Yeah. yeah, I, well, I think those two things are combined because when we think about the study of literature, there's this idea of the author's intent and that is sort of related to context. Mm-hmm. Your interviewee, Max Rudin, said um, that they were trying to republish author's original intent. That is great. But once you put a book in someone's hands, it doesn't matter what the author intended. It's how that person takes an individual journey to understanding and making meaning of what they're reading. Mm -hmm. So it kind of doesn't matter. So the, the counter to that is I just read uh, the first couple uh, books of the Dune Oh, uh, yeah. Novels. Oh, I, you know, did you know sci-fi is my thing? I love sci-fi. Spice in that mm-hmm. is, and again, no spoilers, but it's like this psychedelic drug mm-hmm. that people in the book use to see the future and all kinds of stuff. Knowing that that book was written in the 1960s mm-hmm. shed so much context uh. to that but it definitely seems to be a 1960s view towards mm. drugs, like, like getting like to this higher plane yeah. of, of existence and having better understanding of the world through drugs, which I think most people at this point are like, uh, mm. I don't think that that's, there's truth to that. But is there anything from that interview that you thought was interesting and like jumped out to you? Oh, I like that he had resources. Like he mentioned there were resources to help any audience really uh, understand and relate to the original text. So I really like that Mm because when he was mentioning all these uh, quintessential authors and texts, I was like, yeah, but are they quintessential? Because how much of the population is experiencing it? But I think that that attempt to make it more relatable and to make it um, more marketable Mm -hmm. is really commendable. I love the idea of of getting these libraries to bring... um veterans and their community together and have this shared experience. I mean, that, that must have been an amazing thing mm-hmm. to experience. I have no transition to this, but I also just want to shout out uh, all the music you're hearing in this episode is from Yaniza, who is a, another New York City local musician. So I want to thank her for, for letting us borrow her music for, for this episode. Yeah, you should check out some of her videos on YouTube because sure. they also showcase New York nicely. Cool. So we're going to move on to our last interview, uh, which is with friend of mine named uh, Ellie Windham, and she has a basically a blog, but she's started a community around the blog called Walking in Other People's Shoes. Uh. And so let's jump into that. Anyway. Wyndham, who is the founder of Walking in Other People's Shoes. I should say Ellie Wyndham and her posse. Well, it's like interviewing a rap artist, actually. <laughs> so tell me, what is Walking in Other People's Shoes? Well, Walking in Other People's Shoes is a blog, and it's for a um, the community for women mm-hmm. who can share their voice. Um, we have a, a prompt question, and basically we're asking women how they found their voice. And we are trying to encourage other women and also trying to inspire people who's also looking for their voice. You were just out of grad school when this first yes. clicked, right? Or started to click. The first seeds of this were, were planted, yeah. of this idea. 2014. Right. Um, and I graduated um, NYU with international education. And it was about a year um, and I was just like figuring out what I wanted to do and I was interviewing people outside of my industry just to get a sense of what other people 
have done on their career paths and it was both women and men at first when I was doing my informational interviews then I realized I was really connecting with other women especially women of color so I could relate to them mm-hmm. and so and I was looking at other blogs and I couldn't find anyone that like looked like me or have experiences like me so I thought I could start my own and that's how I started like interviewing people and especially women do you remember a particular interview where like this is really interesting and and was there like a moment where you're like I wish I had a blog to share this person's story yeah I interviewed my friend Jen Stern who is a events producer at the um, health corps where I was intern and I realized she started her career not in events it was in she studying science biotech and then then eventually went into events planning and then she started her own events company and then I realized oh I like you know how she just went from A to B but had five other steps to get there so I've really resonated with that and yeah that was the first interview with a woman that I could relate to and that started me to think oh you know I should really focus on just talking to other women she was Asian I'm Asian so we were bo- I felt like wow I, this is the first person I connected mm-hmm. and she still uh, is in my life and that's great and you know for me to have that it's important so I thought maybe that's important for other women too to have that to have someone that they can look up to that could relate to them does she know that she's kind of the inspiration behind the I don't blog? think so. Now she oh, will. She knows <laughs> <laughs> she, now she knows. <laughs> One thing, um, so there was some prep, but you didn't talk about um, your journey to finding your voice because you're in the block um, for like, your disability. And yeah. Um, I guess I should show. say yeah. that, you know, I started my blog because, you know, for me to understand the world, I actually have to think things through and like map it out. You know, sometimes the conceptual thinking might be very hard or critical thinking might be hard for me. Because having informational processing disorder is what I write that in my my um, little information on my, my blog. Um, just because I realize it's really important to show what learning disabilities look like you know because we don't talk about it as much on like not among the minority groups you know disability and minorities people don't realize I had to relearn English in college and had to go back to phonics and learn ah, ba, su you know like all the alphabet all over again relearn how to read and write in my at the same time doing my coursework so I had a lot of struggle trying to tell myself, I'm a little delayed on understanding things, but I'm not going to give up, you know? And like having a learning disability builds your character because you have to work harder than most people. And then also you have to think ahead. And then you have to process things a little bit more deeply than other people because they might have it easily mm-hmm. to come to them. For me, I have to work harder. And then that makes me tired. <laughs> and yeah. people realize, don't realize I am exhausted sometimes because I'm like trying to understand so much and my brain just, you know, can't handle all that. And also thinking about what you said. If you ask me a question, I'm trying to process what you asked me so then I can try to think of the answer in my head and then say it to back to you. Gotcha. So it's like, I'm going like through so many processes just to answer a question. Right. My inner voice, I guess, has been like, you're not good enough, you're just slow, you know, you're you know, you have to make it perfect. But I think through the blog, it doesn't have to be perfect. Because you know what? If it's not like that to a certain standard, then 
you're not gonna have fun. You're not gonna learn. You're not gonna grow. And I feel like we go to like be realistic and say, you know what? We're here to learn and grow. And practicing through repetition helps me. We're doing the same thing over and over again, but we improving each time we do it. You know, each entry gets better, and I feel like we do it in a way that it makes sense to me, and it's making sense to you and our editor Amanda. How did it? How did it go from idea into a reality? I struggle with writing and editing, so my friends help me to you know organize it, edit it, and then I form my own team to help me to you know. Produce it, so it's not only me, mm-hmm. my vision, but they help me to create my vision. You know, we we formed a question that we both, we all, actually um, really thought was important, which is voice. We're asking women like how they found their voice. Um, our blog evolved throughout the years, and now it's more concrete. I feel like we are on a good path mm-hmm. right now of like finding out our own voices and as well as other people's voices. Excellent. So you were telling me at some point earlier. <laughs> yeah, you can clap. We can clap. Yay! Uh, you were telling me at some point that um, you had obviously you have these amazing stories that you're you're really collecting these amazing stories from different women, um, but some of the ones that were, that really stood out were. Could you could you tell me about Sheila's uh, experience? Yeah, so Sheila, um, she was a corporate lawyer and she was hating her life. Sheila's voice, I feel like she found it after like experiencing her father's illness, and she had to quit her job to go back and help her father get better. and helped her to really um, help him to uh, feel, feel better, like, you know, and take care of him. Um, so Sheila was not not happy in her career as a corporate lawyer. But then now she's, you know, um, you know, went through running. Um, she signed up for New York Roadrunners uh, training program and she won after she ran her first marathon and I think through running and meeting other runners who also struggle with different, you know, um, obstacles, even though she's it's a different ish situation for her, but she see the that people go through a lot of things in their life and that running helps them and and it helped her and and to feel like there's a community with her through running. And um, and now she's a fitness um, blogger, and she's also a, a fitness consultant. Um, and then she um, did our for our last event for the year. Um, we featured her in a um, event with a friend of mine named Julia, and and we had. She's a licensed therapist, and we had a conversation where we tried to, um, you know, make it very inclusive to everyone's voices within the group. It's not just Sheila's voice that we're highlighting, but we we interviewed her to start the conversation about how her career change and career transition, because that was a big theme of her writing because of changing her you know, stable corporate job to more of like unstable, you know, more freelance um, lifestyle, mm-hmm. which is can be very stressful for people. Um, so we tied that into um, just talking about life changes in the our actual event that we hosted. Cool. There was a story you had mentioned, which I think I was intrigued by. Am I pronouncing this wrong? Gerilyn? Yeah, Gerilyn. Yes. And I think um, her story was um, she was going through a lot of change. 
as you know, most people's lives, there's lots of changes. Mm-hmm. But um, she had like a, a bad breakup. And then also her brother passed away and um, she it he got shot by a cop um, so he, she's devastated and didn't know how you know it's just grief just going through grief so she started to run and also started doing ultra marathons so she found relief doing exercise which is a big factor for self-help and so she you know done her first half uh, Ironman and so that helped her to find her voice Um, she's also a artist um, so she you know does that as a outlet too Mm -hmm. so she's she does a lot of um, things physically you know with running so cycling and swimming um so she's she's obviously dedicated to her mental health through exercise so i think it's very therapeutic um for women to write out these thoughts and feelings and these actions that they took in a place that they could be heard and validated to their experience I think that's really important that we create that space and time and place. And um, so we are very thankful to give that experience to women in our blog. I could I could listen to these stories actually a long time. So thank you so much. Thank you. I woke up having a good day. Sun was shining. I got good news in my mailbox. Think of all the places where I've never been Took a stroll down the street The Galao spoke to me And this is what they said Alright, so that was Walking in Other People's Shoes. Um, I think one of the things I'm seeing certainly go through all of these is, now that I'm listening to all of them, is the idea of validating someone's writing. And writing as self, like a validation of one's writing as a validation of the self. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems to be, I guess, uh, it seems to be a theme that runs through everyone. You know, the, if we start with um, the organization that publishes students' writings to validate their creativity, um, we have an organization that looks back at uh, really important writing and, and validates what might have been missed by the general public, and then here on a much more personal uh, level. Um, so I, the other thing I think is really interesting about this interview, though, that's different than the other ones, is the idea of writing as therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a big piece of what, um, of what they do. So uh, what do you think of writing as a form of therapy? Mm. That's so interesting because I think that uh, when we were talking about it first, the first interview with the students, I imagined creativity to be therapeutic. Okay. Writing is a sp- it, writing allows you to have a conversation with yourself mm-hmm. or an imagined audience or both. And so it's a great way to work through a lot of what happens to you and what you see in the world and your relationship with others. Mm-hmm. I mean, Proust dedicated seven volumes to his own experiences and understanding of himself. So I'm sure we could all do that. Anything else in that interview that, that jumped out to you that you thought like you wanted to talk about? I thought her experience was interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad um, you brought that up. Yeah, tell me more about that. You and I just talked about how much we love Radiolab. Radiolab taught me a tip about podcasting, which is keep the microphone recording after the interview. Mm-hmm. And so that in that clip you hear um, her friend ask her a question. That was our, we had like an hour-long discussion about what it was like to, about her experience of being someone who has a, a learning disability, mm-hmm. a significant learning disability, and how starting the blog is a way to challenge herself and get better. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a great origin story for uh, for this. Yeah, it was really, it, it was interesting to hear about her and some of the women that you highlighted too. So her, her blog sounds pretty cool. I mean, finding female role models is pretty great. 
So I'm with that. That's how my superhero conversation right. goes <laughs> That's true. That's how we started this whole thing. Yeah. Well, I think that that blog allows everyone to find female role models. You know, sometimes we tend to find role models in like these really high places, like Harriet Tubman is my role model. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi is my role model. But then because they're such public figures, even though I picked two examples that are like also not really, anyway, uh, it, it almost diminishes how wonderful it is to find a role model who is not famous. And so here she celebrates that by being like, hey, I'm going to shine a light on you right. because you're pretty awesome, even though nobody else, um, you know, you don't have an audience of 50,000 million people. Right. And, and obviously the issue with role models isn't necessarily do people need it, but what is, where is the, are there an equal amount of role models for right. everyone to mm -hmm. access based on? Yeah their background and their experience. And I think she's really hitting at that saying like, you know, I had to work a little bit harder mm -hmm. or maybe a lot harder than I built Gwen would need to work to right, find, to find role models model. yeah, that, no, that look like me. Absolutely. And I think another thread that runs through all of your interviews is representation is organizations really trying to, um, represent young people writers that are more modern and writers that are classic mm -hmm. and here real people real women who are worthy of note and worthy of applause just mm -hmm. like we all are except that you know we're not famous well this has been this has been great i hope you enjoyed this experience uh, i wanted to send out one last thank you certainly to 826nyc library of america uh walking in other people's shoes Yaniza, uh, who provided the music for uh, the entire episode, and my wonderful co-host, Priya. Thanks. It was my first podcast. I hope I done it. I couldn't tell. Yeah. I've had the time of my life being with you. All the ups and downs that we've been through. You've seen me cry, and I've seen you. I've got your back, and you've got mine. I mean, is it as tragic as? putting your head in an oven while your two children are in the other room? No. But, you know, to be a little dark, I guess she couldn't foresee that and put that in the book. Right. <laughs> you might want to edit that part out. <laughs>